very first Paralympic gold medal at Beijing 2008, back in Asia again, and she's going to win her second gold medal here at Tokyo 2020. Yip Pin Shu of Singapore is a champion again. People would stare. So my mom said if people stare, just look back at their legs. Five-time Paralympic gold medalist Yip Pin Shu has clinched yet another trophy. Now, the Singaporean swimmer on Friday received the first ever President's Award for Inspiring Achievement. The award honours Singaporeans for overcoming personal adversity and excelling on the global stage and for their contribution to society. Welcome back to Season 3 of Flame Bears, Keeping the Fire Burning. I'm your host, Jamie. In today's episode, we spotlight legendary Singaporean swimmer, Yip Pin Shu. Pin Shu is Singapore's most decorated Paralympian ever. With five Paralympic gold medals, five world championships, and two world records in the 50-meter backstroke S2 and the 100-meter backstroke S2. We talk about her rise from being bullied as a child to her commitment to being a role model for others today. We also talk about how Tokyo is different than the other games she's participated in. I am Yi Ping Xiu. I'm a Paralympic swimmer. And I, what titles are important to me? I guess a Paralympian, a woman, um, a youth, a daughter, a friend. Yeah, all of those. Like, I mean, I do a lot of things, but essentially, I am a lot, a, a lot of uh, different facets of me joined together. Yes. Do you remember your first time swimming? But I first started my first swim lesson when I was five. Um, it was a family activity. My brothers and I would play together in the pool. And after a while, my mom decided that we should start classes. So she asked one of the coaches there if they were happy to take someone with a disability. And I think I was really fortunate because she had um, another student who was an amputee before. So she knew that it was uh, possible for people with disabilities to start swimming or just to learn sports in general. And that was how I started as well. Wow. You just gave me goosebumps. I definitely want to hear more about that a bit later. First, can you tell us about your life growing up? What was a normal day like for you? I grew up in um, in Singapore, so I've always been like a born and bred city girl. I've never lived for a long time um, overseas. I, if I do, it would be on like competitions or training camps and that would also be at most two months. So. Um, very childhood was really nice because I think I grew up in this generation where social media hadn't really exactly taken over the world yet and so we weren't always on our phones we were out playing in the grass having picnics in the sand um, it was really nice family activities I remember my family is really close in the so I remember um, activities where we would go kite flying or even just camping at the beach. So it was really nice. <laughs> I know you've also been really open about Charcot Mary Tooth and what your experience was like growing up. 
Pinchu, I, to be honest, I, I hadn't heard of Charcot Mary Tooth before, so I had to do some research. CNT can be defined as any inherited neuropathy, meaning that the nerves degenerate, and about 3 million people globally have CMT, making it one of the most common inherited neurological diseases. So that's about one in every 2,500 people. If you're open to it, would you tell us about it? Um, I have Chakomari tooth. So my condition is a condition that degenerates. Uh, when I was younger, I used to be able to walk. And uh, at, uh, I think around three years old, my mom noticed that there was a foot drop. Uh, when I was around five, my finger started to kind of like claw up. And only when I was 12, then I had to use a wheelchair. But people tend to ask me if I was upset having to use a chair. But honestly, at that point in time, I was so happy. I started taking the chair and um, zooming all around my living room because it, it, it really got really difficult for me to walk from place to place to balance. And I could not go to places without the help of other people. But my wheelchair is, I'm not wheelchair bound. I'm wheelchair independence. It gives me a whole different outlook in life and it just gives me so much more freedom. And I know that there were other challenging parts of your childhood as well. Is that correct? People just, uh, a lot of people laughing, saying things, um, leaving me behind. And the worst thing was that even the teachers would do that. Wow, that is wild. Yeah, so I think uh, I live in a society where at that point in time, it was not common for people. Um, there were not a lot of um, representations about disabilities. Um, the awareness was really low. So my classmates tend to see me as very different. And I think it is normal for... It's not nice, but it's normal for kids to treat um, people who are different from them differently. And so I was uh, bullied in school because I was just different, not only because I was on braces, but also because I swam, so I was tenor. I, um, I had like really curly hair, which is very un-Asian. So I basically stood out a lot in class um, and not for the best reasons. So I think because of that, I was also um, not really um, accepted into communities, into class, into friend groups. Um, it got a lot better as I went through the grades. But um, still wasn't fantastic, I think. It was only when I was in secondary school, then I started to see school in a whole different light. When I had friends, when I had teachers who were like extremely accepting, when I had um, people who uh, loved me for who I was. If you could go back and whisper something to younger Pinchu, what would you tell yourself? What is the one thing that you wish you had known when you were younger? I think when I was younger, there wasn't really a lot of disability representation in Singapore. So what I would tell my younger self was really to 
not worry about it that I was not so different from everyone else and that um just do what I needed to do and like the future would be so bright you 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 never imagine Pinchu, you've been an incredibly outspoken advocate of inclusion and celebrating all abilities. I've worked with a lot of different Paralympians who use different words. So I want to make sure we're using the words you feel are best and most representative for you. So what word or words do you use and help me understand why? I don't exactly think that... um... I don't really want to step into this line where I say that like a, a, a word that everybody normally uses is wrong. Like the only word that I find a little bit more um, degrading is probably handicap. But I don't know why. I was actually just thinking about it the other day. Like, what's wrong with the word handicap anyway? You know, I think it was just that when I was younger, and then somebody told me that that's not the right term to use, and then I was like, okay, but. Actually, if you come to think about it, is there? I, I, I use disability, but of course, people have also told me that it's probably better to be um, known as differently able or uh, things like that. But personally, I don't take much of an offense to it. Like, like it's not so much the term, but what comes with the term. If you say suffers from a disability, then that one, I. I find that it isn't that right because I don't think that I'm suffering from a disability. Um, if you say something like in spite of a disability, then that one's also a little bit off because I mean, I'm doing great with or without my disability. Yeah, so it's, it's things that come with the word, I guess. That's really helpful. Thank you. The reason I ask is because it's really important for us to use the words that you use and many people feel really differently about it so thank you tell us how do you show up for your commitment to this community what do you do to show your support so i show my support by um advocating for it by showing the community that being disabled does not mean unable being disabled does not disqualify you know i'm part of the conversation i um, achieve so that I create more news for it. And I think I've, give, I've been given this responsibility ever since I was pretty young, ever since I was 16, thereabouts. And I'm pretty much pushed into the limelight after Beijing 2008 Paralympic Games. Um, I've always known that I have this responsibility because uh, I, I have this platform, this stage, this voice to use it. Hence, I will use it and I will use it well. So I. I started doing it when I was 16 and I think by now it's really just second nature, it's part of who I am. And for me to really just be the voice for the community and for not not just the disability community but also the sporting community, youth, women, everybody. Well, I think you are honestly an absolute incredible role model that everyone can learn from regardless of their gender, their ability etc anything how can people of all abilities be better allies for people with disabilities oh i like this question <laughs> um it's really very simple i think very often we see somebody with a disability and we tend not to talk to them because we don't know how to approach it 
you know, like I myself even fall into it. Like if I see a blind person, do I approach them? Do I not? Do I scare them? You know, kind of thing. Are they actually blind? So I don't know unless like it's very clear and certain that okay, they are using a stick or or something like that. But over the years, I've really come to realize that it's important to start conversations. It's important to talk to people, get to know them. So even as allies, it is important to look beyond the physical self and just truly understand somebody for who they are, uh, and then decide if you like them or not. Not just based on who they are or what disability they have. That's such a good point. I've definitely felt that too. Where. Honestly, I'm almost too scared to approach it directly and head on because I don't know what to say or I'm nervous I'm going to say something wrong. Honestly, how do you get over it and and just just go for it? How do you do that? <laughs> um, I think it takes years of practice, but you do it once and then you realize that, hey, it isn't that difficult after all. Then you can do it again and again and again. And more often than not, even if somebody asks me, like, even if somebody asks me really directly, like, what's wrong with you? I mean, some people might find this a good question, but I am completely okay with it. I'll answer them. If that's how we start to break down some walls. Because Pinchu has been the face of sport in Singapore for so long, I wanted to get her friend's perspective on the role she's played in her country. So I sat down with her friend and fellow Singaporean Paralympic teammate, Teresa Go. She influenced sport in Singapore in a very immense way, in my opinion. I think that's through her representation in uh, Paralympic sport in Singapore. You know, I think 2008 was truly a, a turning point. It's uh, when people or the public, you know, set up and took notice of para spot in Singapore and I think that's uh, a moment that forever changed history. Pinchu, so we've now talked about your childhood, your commitment to being a voice for individuals in the disabled community. We need to hear about your time in Tokyo. You are now a five-time Paralympic gold medalist. Tokyo was, I would say that Tokyo was really tough, but not only physically tough, Tokyo was extremely mentally tough just because of the entire COVID situation as well. You know, we spent a normal Paralympic cycle is four years. I went to Beijing, London, Rio, and then Tokyo. But Tokyo being five years and being um, such a huge disruption was really mentally um, it really tested me in many different ways. We had to reevaluate our entire program. We had to hit such a huge reset button a year before that because I couldn't hit the water for about two months, leading up uh, two months. Sometime when like COVID was at its peak, you know, I the, the whole world came to a stop, and even sports came to a stop. And like as athletes, we basically never stop. You know, I spent the four years before that not stopping and then now it's so close to it. You tell me I have to stop. So this was like, oh man, I had to take a while to get back to it again. And uh, it felt extremely lonely. Um, There were no more 
training camps, no more competitions. Um, my best friend who retired a couple of years before that wasn't with me. So I pretty much kind of went through the journey alone. Of course, with my coach and with my team, but it wasn't the same. So when I went, uh, when I won my events and I got onto the podium, it was really such an emotional moment for me. Like it was the first time I actually felt it on the spot and then cried on the podium because like it was such a journey and I was just so thankful to have all the Singaporeans supporting me. Like it really felt like an entire village coming together to support one athlete and it felt truly amazing. Wow. So this season of the podcast is all about what happens after the games. So essentially, you know, when the cameras go home, how was your life after Tokyo? Well, Singapore is a really small country. So generally, we don't have like many supporters as well, because normally the crowd is like the home crowd, you know, um, they, they support the people. But what was special about Tokyo was because Everybody had such a limited amount of officials. Was that you could I could hear Team Singapore so loudly, and it was amazing. <laughs> like if I look back at the videos now, I can hear them shouting. I can hear my reaction to them and everything. It was really fantastic. Um, after Tokyo, I came back to Singapore. I had to serve a two-week quarantine. Okay, I wouldn't say best two weeks of my life because I've had many great two weeks of my life, but it was so good. We were put up in an amazing hotel. Um, people were sending gifts and food and uh, things every single day that when I went home, I had to get... I couldn't just take a taxi and go home. I had to get somebody to come get me just because there was so much stuff in my room. But uh, even after that, I think the pandemic was still on. So. Uh, we didn't have much of a celebration or anything. It was um, only at the end of the year, we had a bus parade for all of the world champions uh, that Singapore had that year. What else? Um, but all in all, if I look at the, in, in the general sense of things, I think a lot more Singaporeans know about the Paralympics. A lot more Singaporeans know about parasports. Um, the inclusion scene in Singapore, diversity and inclusion is has grown um, a lot more. And I think that it's just been baby steps, but such an amazing thing to be a part of this journey. Pinchu, before we wrap up, we give every athlete the opportunity to make an ask of our global community. We now have listeners in 49 countries around the world and a community of people who want to support you. What is the one action you want people to take after hearing your story? I think the one thing that's important to me is for people to take control of their lives. Um, very often we like to not exactly take full responsibility about what's happening. We blame other people, other things, but I have realized that um, it's important to be taking um, consistent, deliberate actions every single day to get to your goals. And if you do that, it really isn't hard and it's extremely fun. It's satisfying. Okay, so how do you do that? I'm trying to think if I'm a listener, you're saying take clear, concise control. Do you make lists of your goals? Like, How do you know what to do? 
So I think basically it pretty much starts from um, it starts from what you want in life. You know, first you have to identify your purpose in life and your goal in life, and then um, slowly plan steps. So when I first started using this strategy, I had to um, write whatever I wanted to do down. And then, uh, okay, so actually, it's when I say it's our thought to plan goals, we have three different stages. We have the main goal, which has to be something quantifiable, uh, performance goals, and then process goals. Performance goals are pretty much like benchmarks to see if you're on the right track. Whereas process goals are the important things because that's what you need to do every single day. So it could be go to training X amount of times in a week. And then if you do that, the entire week, you take it off. Sleep eight hours in a night, which is also very important for an athlete. Is being an athlete is not just about training; it's about everything else in life. What you eat, what you, how you rest, how you sleep, how you conserve your energy, how you um, keep the positive people around you, how you have a strong support network. There are so many things. So, what you need to first do is to identify um, what are the things you need before you can work towards them. Yeah, like. A lot of people coast through life, but I think it's uh, not as fun as when you have something to work towards. Thanks for tuning in to Flame Bearers, keeping the fire burning. For more behind the scenes coverage, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Flame Bearers. Thank you to my amazing teammates, Marissa Potter, Maru Ganda, Sakshi Singh, Lizzie Michael, and Robbie Rowe. Thank you to Karen Ruther, Dino Catano, and Emma Minto for your ongoing support. We'll catch you on our next episode.